start focusing on the built environment for what it's there to do, which is to enable people to live healthy, prosperous lives. We're having to build stuff to get to the what almost feels like an oasis moment of this future infrastructure state of the built environment. But it isn't that far away and it is definitely a realizable future. Welcome back to the Future Engineering Club podcast. My name is Jack Lomas and join me as I speak to some of the brightest minds in the built environment, hearing firsthand their experience building the future of our planet. Now, there's so much change in the built environment as we know it. And over the last few months, we've spent a fair amount of time focused on the topic of energy and the evolving role that it plays in both supporting our communities and on a larger scale, helping us deal with the ever-changing environment that we find ourselves in, with investment decision-making driven largely by climate change. Just to touch on a few of the most recent episodes, we've looked at improving the reliability of the energy grid to micronuclear power plants, all the way through to using geothermal energy to power carbon capture technology. As I'm sure you could tell, this is a topic that we could pretty much dedicate an entire podcast series to in itself. The energy transition is arguably one of the most important challenges within our lifetime and requires innovation across the full value chain from energy generation through renewable sources, all the way through to how energy is consumed in our homes and businesses. One of the key steps within that flow of electricity, from the cool offshore wind turbines through to our computers and lights, is the process of electricity transmission via a vast network of infrastructure, which in England and Wales is owned and maintained by National Grid Electricity Transmission. And with that, for this episode, I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome Joe Northwood, Director of Operational Support for Strategic Infrastructure at National Grid Electricity Transmission. Just before I pass over to Joe, if I may ask a favour, if you enjoy this episode, please consider giving it a share on LinkedIn and a follow on Spotify, as it really helped promote our conversation to others who might find it helpful. And with that, let's welcome Joe. Okay, where to start? So I'm Joe Northwood. I'm Director of Operational Support for what we've called Strategic Infrastructure within National Grid Electricity Transmission, which is a new business unit that we've set up to deliver against the challenges of the energy transition, which I'm sure we'll get into in more detail today. So my role is ultimately at the front end of that project lifecycle, the very technical project development and network strategy to make sure what we build is in line with what we need. And I'm also accountable for the digital transformation across our strategic infrastructure business unit to make sure that how we build it is in a way that is born digitally such that we can we can enable those assets to be built digitally and delivered differently. Brilliant. Thank you. I'd love to really start off the conversation with a bit of a big question that I'd love to put to you. So where does our energy come from? That's a good question. And look, there's a there's an answer that is in transition, I think, is the, is the, is the best summary because the sector is, is changing to adapt its source of energy. And I think the main thing to acknowledge here is that the source of energy that we started and built the network from and how we've previously used, consumed and generated energy is now transitioning to a different source of energy, a different supply, and even the way in which we consume and use it is changing. So Historically, the network was built around generation being from dirty coal generation, principally mined in the UK, built co-located around the demand centres, and the network infrastructure was built to enable the flow between the points of generation and consumption, and that's the network that we've got at the moment. 
that network within the last few weeks actually turned 70 years old. Obviously, not all of it is that old, but that was when it was originally born and conceived. To, to The network has evolved over the last few years for those electrons to be principally generated from cleaner sources, more distributed, more disaggregated, and actually, as we would hope and intend, more decarbonized sources of energy. And actually, those green electrons are now stretching the network beyond what it was originally built and designed to do to to enable us to more infinite source of energy. And that's ultimately the destination of the energy transition is to get to a point where we're at low carbon, low cost and resilient and secure supplies of energy that is clean and green so that we have a, a resilience as an energy system that is not reliant on finite sources of energy that are harmful to the environment. So the network is in a really interesting place right now, and it's adapting from what it was to what it will be. And actually, our source of energy has to has to pivot to that as well. So a long answer to a, a short question, but actually that context is super important for where we need to get to and, and why we have different parts of the sector moving in the way that they are to enable that transition. One of my favorite things to do in my spare time, and maybe this says more about me, but I, I love to go to the National Grid website and actually it shows a live view of where our energy comes from at any given point in the day. And I, I went like just before this and it's uh, so about 32 gigawatts of demand at the minute. Yeah. I'd love for you to, if you don't mind, just explain what that actually means. But in terms of the sources that we're seeing, uh, sort of 57% renewables made up of wind and solar. 9% fossil fuels, and then some nuclear, some biomass chucked in there as well. That's, for me, fascinating. And when I check it, it all, it's always different. Sometimes fossil fuels higher, sometimes wind and solar higher. And it's, it's just incredible that we have found ourselves in this situation where we've got such varying levels of energy sources, and it's just such mm. an engineering challenge to bring that to life. But yeah. On the, on the 32 gigawatts of demand point, what, what does that actually mean? Well, it's a good question. Ultimately, that's the amount of energy that's being consumed across the UK at this point in time. And the day in which we're talking, which happens to be 22 degrees outside from where I'm currently sat. I mean, we've come on the bounce of three or four weeks of perpetual groom and grey. So therefore, our source of energy is going to be very different today to what it was in those previous three weeks. And and that is really what's represented in that point of consumption app in what's making up those 32 gigawatts of demand. The, the demand is ultimately what's being consumed at that present moment in time. So even to facilitate this conversation, you know, we've got portable devices, we've got internet towers making cellular communication, we've got lighting, we've got cooling as it's quite warm. All of the UK to keep it ticking over is consuming that amount of energy, which is a, you know, about average 32 to 36 gigawatts is about what the midpoint daily demand is. Look, we're just about to roll into a lunchtime requirement with people working from home. They might put kettles on, they might put, dare I say it, they might put televisions on and they might have a bit of a break. You know, the, there's a nominal profile of a day which starts at breakfast. It starts to peak up around that time when people wake. It starts to plateau a bit when people move away from homes into office spaces and then in the evening, it peaks back up again. So that profile and demand is quite consistent. But the source of energy over the point of the day, depending on the weather, depending on the sources, has to be dynamic. So 
to bring it back to your first question, the system that we get those electrons from point to consumption has to be able to flex dependent on all of those variables. So the role that it plays in the background when you flip that switch for the lights to just come on, which we all often take for granted, it's the backbone of how we live our lives today that enables us to do that. So the other point I wanted to make is about the mix. And I think that's the, the often commonly misunderstood picture of our energy mix. And, it, and, and, and everyone's like, well, we've got all of this energy. We've got all this new technology. Why can't we just go solar or wind or nuclear? And the benefit that we've got from you painted there is there, there is a, a plethora of sources, lots of different areas where we can tap into generation to satisfy that demand and that's a real privilege and as an island in the uk we we can tap into a lot of infinite resources clean and green resources that i call them infinite resources and, and i use that term quite frequently in the fact that a lot of the principally dirty principally gray sources of carbon are finite there's a fixed amount of them they are fixed materials that need effort to extract but they are finite the renewables platform that we're trying to build in the energy sector is infinite and hence there is an infrastructure cost to access it. There is a lack of infrastructure there to enable it today. But once we've got through that point, you then tapped into something that is infinite. And that's really the summary of the transition. How do we get to that point, but such that you've got an energy mix that's diverse enough for us to not be reliant on any one source of energy supply. I think it's commonly misunderstood as well that electricity today, a big part of that graph will be generated by gas, actually. So a big part of our electricity generation profile, not at the point which you looked at it at the midpoint of the day, but as we get to peak, about 40% of our electricity is created from gas and combined cycle gas turbines where it's principally burnt. Some of those emissions are captured and responsibly captured, but it is another way of creating electricity from a hydrocarbon. So when we amplify that in today's operating environment, we've got the, the Russian intervention on Ukraine and the humanitarian crisis as a result. We've got a European market reliant on gas, principally sourced from Russia. Fortunately, in the UK, we're only about 4% reliant on Russian gas as a source of energy we are tapped into a market that prices gas accordingly, and that's an international market. So hence, energy reliance on gas and a hydrocarbon, we've put a lot of focus on one source. And as a result, energy and the cost of it is because of that over-reliance. So we need to diversify. There isn't a, I'm not going to sit here and say, look, Jack, we need to put all of our eggs into fuel type A, because actually the benefits of having that diversity allows us to have different weather and different sources of generation to that consumption. So it's a complex picture that we're trying to repaint with the energy transition. And just on the point of renewable energy sources, I know that one of the big priorities at the minute is getting 50 gigawatts of offshore wind plugged in by 2030. I imagine that's, well, just from the scale of that, thinking that we're using 32 gigawatts today, and an additional 50 gigawatts is about to be plugged in over the years and not that many years at that. What does that look like from a new infrastructure perspective? Look, it's a, it's a great and very topical question. Let's start with why 50 gigawatts when we've just talked about the daily demand where we are at 32. Is demand expected to increase? So generation needs to surplus 
of available capacity versus demand such that you can tap in and out of it and that you can access multiple sources and look if we if we generate or grow our own energy within the uk and we are in a surplus beyond our demand then we have a commodity in and of itself that is then exportable and saleable internationally as well much like we just talked about with the gas market you can sell the electrons in the same way with large cable interconnectors that connect the uk from countries like norway to to france and belgium etc so where we are today we have a need to connect all of that infrastructure. And I talked about what the network looks like and where the electrons are coming from. That offshore wind, gigawatts of offshore wind as a, as a government amity, that's not too far away from recording this podcast in 2023. In a world where the network was not built to get those electrons from offshore and principally in the North Sea on the east coast of the UK, which has a huge capacity for offshore wind. And actually, if you wind out to 2050, it's widely written that the capacity of the North Sea is in the range of 140 to 200 gigawatts of opportunity. To, to The multiples are quite simple when you look at how much demand we've consumed on a daily basis versus how much we could be generating. We've just got to tap into it with that infrastructure. Why do we need it now? Well, multiple factors, as we've touched on, but the infrastructure to enable those green electrons to get to the point of consumption is the bit in the middle that needs to be available so that we can get the benefit out of those green electrons and that our source of energy can be decarbonized, our cost of energy can be reduced, and ultimately the security and resilience of the supply can be diversified. So let's talk specifically about National Grid here. The needs to connect that 50 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030 requires about five to six times the infrastructure to deliver in the next seven years than we've built in the last 31 or so. It's a scale of order of difference compared to what we've built before, but that's the opportunity that we have ahead of us to capture and harness that energy such that we can we can be transitioned and we can be at that end point to go low carbon and low cost electricity with a resilient and secure supply. And I know that that program that you're referring to there is is called the, the Great Grid Upgrade, which is a, is a personal favorite in terms of names of programs. It's brilliant. But what you've described is is obviously a, a hard engineering challenge. And I imagine it's going to take a lot of the brain power across the UK to really help design and deliver that scale of capital infrastructure in such a short period. Really interested for your thoughts on what else we need to deliver that, because I'm, I'm conscious that it's not just an engineering challenge and actually it's going to take quite a team effort across the iron space, right? Absolutely. Whilst it is an engineering challenge, as we've talked about, it is, a, it is now a delivery effort and a UK PLC, if you like, opportunity to, to transition an industry and as a result of that transition to create opportunity in in a lot of areas let's break that down a little bit so that level of infrastructure that we talked about will require a new skills base not only in terms of new skills but in terms of a skills base that needs to grow at the same rate as the requirement of infrastructure to be delivered the supply chain that is providing and producing the assets that we then build with or leave behind 
need to be produced on a global scale. This is not just a UK energy transition. This is a global energy transition. And we have to compete in markets to access and acquire those assets. So we've got to buy these things in a way that is different. And we've got to contract in a way that is different and more flexible and, and nimble. And, and within all of that, we've got to finance all of this. I mean, I love the phrase, but it, this cannot cost the earth, the energy transition. And I love this double, the double impact of that statement that says, actually, this cannot be so expensive that it is inaccessible or undeliverable. But if we fail to act, then it is directly impacting the earth and our environment. So the opportunity is immense. Miscommunicated is that this is an engineering only solve and that we need engineers to solve this. And it's only engineers that will solve it. Now, that is true to a certain extent at the front end, the inception, the design, the development. But this is a sector shift. This is a revolution of an industry that's going to require all types of skills. And that's more wide ranging than engineering. And actually, that's the call to arms really here, that if you're passionate about the destination and the pursuit is something that you're passionate about getting involved with, then there is a role to be had across all avenues of making that transition happen. And the way in which we deliver this now has to change. So the new ways of working, the creative mindsets that need to be applied to this, I think that's where the real opportunity to unlock the accelerated pace and the high volume that we have to deliver by broadening who can contribute to helping build this infrastructure transition. I totally agree. And I was just thinking back to a previous episode where we had David Ferguson, head of net zero innovation at EDF. And mm. we were talking about the scale of challenge around Hinkley Point C. And one of my favorite facts that came out of that was that Hinkley Point C needed every single welder in the UK plus more, which mm. is fascinating in terms of the scale of skills required to deliver these massive big infrastructure projects. And I know that so clearly skills and people and brain power is obviously a key dependency in delivering the scale of infrastructure. Beyond that, what other hurdles do you see in actually making this happen? There are many challenges with the pace and scale of this transition, but with those challenges that need to be addressed, which we've briefly touched on, I think presents an opportunity to radically think differently about how we deliver this infrastructure. And that's really what the opportunity, that's really the opportunity that excites me for how we could do this different. We talked about the network that we have today being 70 years old, and hopefully the infrastructure that we build now will live beyond a further 70 years old and far outdate my lifetime. But the way in which we build it and the infrastructure that we now build can be done so in a way that is different. And I think that's really presents an opportunity to address some of those challenges. So how we deliver this infrastructure, we could look at different ways of building, different ways of delivering. An example that I often love to use is, is how they build infrastructure in the Arab Emirates and how they deliver overhead line tower construction. And they use precast concrete foundations for the, for the foundation and the base of the overhead line tower flown in by helicopter to deliver an asset in about six weeks, which principally in European countries is done by pouring the concrete in situ and building the tower on the ground. So that's a process that in Europe takes about nine months to do 
and there's a lot of on the ground disruption versus the six weeks in a way that's been done when you take off all of the the ways in which we've always delivered it so that's one example which i think is quite a visual one that you can imagine in your mind there's loads of challenges that come with that right i'm not saying that you can directly do that copy paste today um, there's a very different backdrop and context that's enabled that innovation to be deployed but this is no longer about a technology challenge. This is about a process and a, and a people opportunity as to how we accelerate and enable that energy transition. And I know that one of the big priorities across capital infrastructure at the minute is really trying to quantify community benefits of some of this infrastructure. Could you talk a little bit about how we can quantify the, the opportunity and the value of some of these infrastructure projects? Yeah, it's a great point. This is a key area that we have to be mindful of when principally the network has been done on a very technical and economic justification for why it needs to exist, which which got it to where it is today, but it isn't going to get it to where it needs to be in the future. The different areas of the built environment, the cost of carbon, the air quality impacts, the the spillover benefits of what communities get for the infrastructure that we give needs to be considered in the round of what you're building so that actually we build responsibly. We build those assets with the communities engaged and collaboratively with them so that we we leave this infrastructure and the environment better than we found it. And we have the opportunity to do that by being mindful of that right at the early stage of development and design through to delivery and commissioning. And it reminds me a lot of some of the priorities in the water sector, because one of the big drivers at the minute is this idea of biodiversity net gain. So actually, like you've described, leaving an area better than when we, when we left it. And there are so many fascinating opportunities to do this, whether it's say rewilding, whether it's supporting protected species and creating habitats and, and improving the ecology of areas. But there's, there's so much that we can do. And I've seen some really exciting startups actually tackling some of these yep. absolutely combining say different forms of geospatial data with ecology data to try and invest in our local environment and it, it's such an exciting one to see the growth of well it is look and that's the intersection of and software and digital for want of a better categorization with how we can actually enable better societal outcomes look we have to we have to capture this at the earliest point this cannot be an afterthought because where it's an afterthought there will always be a regret and there will always be an impact. And what this is all about is, is making a positive lasting impact rather than a, a negative consequence of regret. And, and there are examples where, where good intentions haven't been well executed. I mean, a lot of, a lot of infrastructure projects that, that have happened where we've talked about biodiversity and net gain have looked at the obvious example of tree planting, but, the tree planting in the same way that they consider the life of the infrastructure asset. And, and there've been examples where actually you've left environments worse than when you found them by a positive intent, but a poor execution. So we need to be conscious of that, but actually when this is well orchestrated and well coordinated, this isn't just one party doing all of the solve. This is how do you collaborate and bring communities into this investment of infrastructure and the point that we've both talked about, leave it better than you found it, so that actually what we get for what we give from the energy transition is far better 
not only from the air quality that we breathe at the end point and the energy supply that's lower cost and more resilient, but our built environment can be done in a way that allows us to, to lead better lives as a result. And we've already touched on the role and the opportunity of data and, and technology in this. Where do you see the, the biggest opportunities to actually evolve the way that we, we think about major capital infrastructure? I think this sector and the built environment is, is littered with opportunities for, for pockets of digital activity. We've got to be conscious that they don't become random acts of digital and uncoordinated random acts of digital don't add up to a bigger benefit than the sum of the parts. But actually, if we think really holistically, if we think really collaboratively across multiple vectors, right, energy is one vector that we've talked about. You've talked about water in a broader utility sense. You know, we've got telecoms. We've got other road and rail networks that are building infrastructure assets, and we've got digital to all of this and where you're building, what you're building, how you're building it. Digital opportunity underpins all of that the very the very insights that determine what you build from its inception through to its commissioning its operation later and its decommissioning dare i say it in the future is all underpinned by data and the better that data is the more accurate that data is the more rich that data is and hopefully the more shareable that data is the better the infrastructure solution that we land in the end. So a lot of opportunities. There are some, let's make it real. We all hear a lot about digital in various different forms. So let's, we might as well throw a buzzword in for, for the sake of a podcast. Chat GPT and natural language modeling, neural networks and artificial intelligence. There's a, there's a good few there. How can that benefit us? Well, look, at the front end of project development and infrastructure development and design, you can make far more mistakes at far less cost than you can when spades are about to hit the ground. And we should really be applying or front-loading that digital application to the high-value engineering and technical development front-end such that you're not reacting to challenges that come up later and using things that are able to think through infrastructure programs that have been delivered before. Where can we learn from those? How do we put them into a natural language model like a chat GPT, for example, using open. How can you leverage the benefits of where others have done this to make this a better program or, or project that you're delivering? So there's, there's one area. But the other bit that helps me is the immersive visualization of making designs real before they get to the point of being a reality. And that, for me, is not a technology problem. That's a digital application at the right point in the process, underpinned by the right data and digital. This technology has been going around for a long time, but headsets, immersive visualization to look at the augmented reality, the the digital overlay onto the, the natural environment is something that we could and should be leveraging far more and across multiple sectors to help us build the infrastructure in a way that is not only responsible, but also more efficient and effective. You've got a really exciting job because you've got this massive opportunity and scale of new infrastructure being delivered and you're delivering it very much from stage zero, right from really just idea stage all the way through. And I know that you personally have such a deep interest in these new capabilities. You mentioned chat. Large language models, etc. How do you connect the two? How how do you 
So on one hand, you've got to deliver this massive infrastructure, and then you've then got all of these new capabilities that you could think about. How do you connect the two and, and bring it to life? It's the daily battle, Jack, I'd say. That is the not only the daily battle, but also the opportunity, the unfair opportunity, if you like, for my role. And it's what deeply excites me about the position that I hold within this sector. It's being able to see what the art of the possible is from all of those different applications, but then being able to identify with the teams that we have and the fiercely intelligent and capable organisation that we've got to apply them into those high impact and high value use cases that they don't just wobble the dial, they move the dial and they shift this forward. And in eight capability within people to do the right thing and to find a better way of doing things because actually that more strong I've been in this sector as I said for over 10 years and never have I felt more strongly than I do today the common and shared purpose of doing this properly and doing it right and that makes it quite easy because you're pushing on an open door but then the challenge is trying to use conventional process and ways of working to apply it That's the challenge. It's the, you can't force fit, you can't break things because look, we still want the lights to come on when this asset is mobilized. Um, And we've got to be able to operate and maintain it in the way that we always have done. But you know, you've got to change how you do it and what you do. So it's just targeting and prioritizing the high value, high impact applications, making sure that you test it before you build it and making sure ultimately that you bring people in collaboratively to make sure that it's not just a single person's bright idea, it's a collective pursuit of doing things differently. And just sticking on that topic of the the, the scale of opportunity and challenge ahead of us, and I, I'm going to put you on the spot slightly just to finish up, if you don't mind. What are you most excited about looking ahead? 10, 15, 20 years ahead. What, what are you most excited about, about the physical world that we, that we live in? It's a great question and it's a massive question. And, it, and look, if I had a crystal ball that was able to very clearly articulate what it looked like, I would, um, I would probably have a much clearer vision on what we needed to do in the short term. But look, what does excite me and motivate me about that destination is when we have have transitioned and we are at that end point of having clean sources of energy and actually our infrastructure is working at that point when our energy bills start to go down and our source of supply is so diverse and decarbonized that actually we start focusing on the built environment for what it's there to do which is to enable people to live healthy prosperous lives actually that is why the environment exists that we're trying to build and to provide the energy for that destination for me is the exciting bit we're having to build stuff to get to the what almost feels like a panacea or an oasis moment at the moment of this future infrastructure state of the built environment. But it isn't that far away and it is definitely a realizable future. That excites me because of how it could be different and actually getting on top of our, our draining and our exacerbating of finite resources to a point where we can all deploy our energy and our focus onto things that make lives more worthwhile to live rather than have to solve some of the problems where we might not have thought about this before. So that as an end state, I don't know when it will be, but I know it's not far away. And actually to be in that space and to be a part of getting there is what keeps me head down, hat on, 
pushing through to make sure that we get there because it's uh, it feels like a worthwhile pursuit to push for. You've been listening to the Future Engineering Club podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. I really hope you enjoyed it. Keep an eye out for next week's episode. And in the meantime, give me a shout on LinkedIn and let me know what you thought. Thanks and goodbye.